3. I'll be looking at that passage in just a moment for the uh, main portion of our study. It's good to see everyone out again. Worship God. It's been a while since I've heard that hymn, and uh, it's 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 been a very long time. I, I had even forgotten that that was in our hymn books, and uh, kind of enjoyed hearing it again, somewhat nostalgic. And it sounded like uh, everyone else knew it because it sounded really good. It just sounded like everybody was kind of afraid to get in there, but it, it sounded very beautiful. And uh, so uh, definitely good to be able to worship God with songs like that that bring such good, um, I would say, genuine joy as we praise Him, at least prayerfully it does. And that's our goal, that we worship God in a way that is, it is well and right, and that is, is true praise to Him. Uh, and for the next few moments, what we're going to do is, again, prayerfully, uh, just go through the Scriptures and see what God would have us to take from them, and hopefully make the application that we are supposed to make. It's been said before, I've seen this on social media, and I've also seen this on uh, internet searches as, as just, I'd be studying for different things, and uh, you know, it just came across my computer several different times, but I really liked the uh, quote, and the quote was, we are what we repeatedly do. And I just thought that that was always impactful, and frankly, I think it's a very good segue into what we're going to be talking about, which is habits. Something that we do repeatedly is a habit. Something, And we could have good habits, we could have bad habits. A lot of times we talk about breaking bad habits and how hard that is and how difficult it is sometimes and how uh, it takes steadfastness, how it takes long-suffering to actually instill a good habit. Uh, and so, you know, these things sometimes take time and they're not necessarily the easiest things to, to accomplish or achieve, but that's what we're going to talk about tonight, but specifically habits that elders are supposed to have and habits that they are not supposed to have. That's how we're going to break it up this evening. We're going to discuss uh, just a few things here and we'll kind of finish up the qualifications. Incidentally, this is not going to be the last uh, sermon on this, probably just one more just to kind of tie it all together. But this is going to be the last lesson that we look at the qualifications because we've gone through every single one with the exception of these last few that he is to be temperate, self-controlled, Prudent in 1 Timothy, the same Greek word in, in Titus is sensible. That he's not given to wine, not self-willed, not quick-tempered. All of these things, I, I think, really uh, are, are quite similar. And we're going to see that as we continue on. But again, there are positive habits and there are negative habits that we need to be careful of and, and, and that we need to be thinking about. And what's interesting, again, is that I think all of this seems to go together. And so as we look at this and, and begin with just these positive habits, I'd like to... Uh, ask if you can see maybe an overall idea when it comes to being temperate and self-controlled and, and prudent or, or sensible. And there's a lot of, I know that there's a lot of text on this screen. I, I generally try not to make sure, I try to make sure that that doesn't happen, but I think it's going to be helpful as as I think it is helpful all throughout this study. We've looked at, you know, the definitions of these words and not just, you know, gone insane in delving deeper into d just plain definitions, but just trying to make the point, what was God saying here? And even with one of the qualifications we're going to be talking about tonight, I think people sometimes get away from the point that God is making. Uh, and so I do think it's helpful to look at these things from time to time. But as I've been going through this, have you noticed any word or any overall notion that kind of uh, it pops out as you read throughout these definitions and as you look at these different words? 
These positive habits, though distinct, I think are quite similar. All seem to point to one overall idea. And if you haven't seen anything, that's okay. I'm going to give it to you right now. And the notion that I'd like to focus on is discipline. I think that as you look throughout this, you keep seeing the word self-controlled, sober-minded. Someone who's a master of self. What this is talking about is self-discipline. It's talking about someone who, who is able to control themselves. Uh, which is, incidentally, a quality that just really not many people have. Uh, but particularly with an elder, with a shepherd of, the, of, of the, a local congregation, this is absolutely necessary. All Christians should be striving for these habits. All Christians should be striving to have discipline and self-control. But the one who is going to be an elder, he is one who is a good example of self-discipline. He's one who's a good example of all of these things. And so, as you think about this idea of self-discipline, when you look at that word temperate, somber, temperate, vigilant, circumspect, self-controlled, Strong's, uh, the, the Strong's Dictionary would say sober. It's, one way that I've liked thinking about it is when you think about the word temperate, you can almost hear the word temperature. And when you think about it like that, this is someone, this is talking about a man who is temperate, whose temperature doesn't rise very quickly, or at least it shouldn't rise very quickly. It doesn't rise immediately, nor do they like it that way. That's a temperate man. Someone who wants it to, someone who does not want it to get heated. Someone who wants it to be, remain calm and, and considerate and calculated. And again, I think all of these go together because if you look at self-control, I, I, again, I think even that's really clear. But I like the way that Mounts, uh, Mounts' dictionary puts this, that this is a master of self. I, I love that notion of people, a lot of times people will just give just full sway to their emotions and people will just give themselves over to every rash decision and every thought and every circumstance that comes their way. They just, they have no ability to handle it. But this is a man who is a true master of self, someone who can act and react without forgetting who they are, without forgetting that they are an example of Christ. And, I, and both of those things, I think, are really important. He acts and he reacts. Because a lot of times we can act one way, but it's the reactions that are telling. We can do a lot when we're prepared. But when we're unprepared and when situations arise that are just difficult and that are going to prove to be hindrances in our lives, that's when we really can shine as an example of Christ. Or that's when we can really show how deeply his, uh, the cross of Christ has affected us and impacted our lives. And so this is someone who is self-controlled. This is someone who very clearly is able to, to uh, even in the midst of those difficult circumstances, slow down, calm down, and still be considerate. Uh, and, and he doesn't forget himself. He remembers the things that he studies. He remembers the characteristics of his Savior, and he tries to emulate them in every single respect. And, and as you look at that word sensible, I would just add, when you think about self-controlled, Strong's would say that it is strong to think masterful, self-controlled, and I like how he puts in parentheses, in appetite, etc. I think that's pretty interesting, that notion of, of when you look at this Greek word and here's a, a man who, who, who knows what he's talking about, he uses this and says in appetite, in appetite, etc. I think, I think even in appetite, he needs to have self-control. Even in appetite, he needs to be a master of self. This is not someone who is so used to just feeding every single indulgence. This is someone who's able to abstain. This is someone who is able to, again, calm down and not be rash. And again, with this word sensible, 
It, it just carries with it a, a, almost a, as a synonym. Someone who's of sound mind, sane, temperate, discreet, modest and chaste. Strong would say safe and sound in mind, self-controlled, moderate as to opinion or passion, discreet, sober, tem- sober and temperate. So while this is a synonym, I think it's still distinct because here you have this notion of, he uses the word moderate. This isn't talking about polit- being politically moderate. What he's talking about is someone who doesn't make rash decisions, moderate as to opinion or passion. There's a lot of people who every single opinion and thought that they have is to the extreme. And, and I mean, that, that, especially as I was growing up, that's how, I talk, that's how I act and I talked a lot of the time. And my dad would constantly have to pull me on the side and say, you know, not everything has to be at 10. <laughs> and, and the one who's sensible is not going to be that way. He's not going to be, you know, uh, very extreme in every opinion or passion. And in fact, as we're going to see as we get to these negative uh, qualifications, the things that he's not supposed to be, that's what I mean by negative, we're going to see that all of this needs to be in place. And, And in fact, if all of these positive qualifications are in place, the knots won't be a problem. In, in the grand scheme of things. And in fact, if we want to ask the question, how can we tell if a man has these qualities, being temperate, self-controlled, and sensible, being prudent, a good way to know that, a good indicator is, is he struggling with the knots? Is he struggling with these habits that are not supposed to be a part of his life? If he is, that means that he probably is not a master of self. If he is struggling with those things, that probably means that he is not prepared in being sound in mind. And so, again, I just wanted to briefly look at these things so that way we could get into the main part of our uh, study tonight, which is looking at those negative qualities. And and all of that is going to be used as a foundation of what we talk about throughout the rest of of these three uh, negative qualities, what he is not supposed to be. And the first thing we start with is in the New American Standard, it says addicted to wine. Your translation may say uh, given to wine. Or it may say something along those lines. I'm not sure that I really necessarily like all of the uh, (laughs) translations that have been given. And the reason is because of what we're about to talk about. Because what happens is when people see something like he is not addicted to wine, there's a question that people tend to insert and, and I tell you, people really go a long way with this specific idea. And, and I would say it's a needless insertion. And, and, and what, before I even go into that, again, we are trying to see what is the point that God is making with what he's writing. When he gives us a pattern, we want to find his purpose, not just any purpose that suits me or anybody else. We're looking for his purpose. And this insertion that we're going to look at in just a moment, it, it proves that people get away so easily from the purpose or the point that God is making. But because people uh, ask this question, I think we're going to have to answer it and we're going to talk about it a little bit, but we're going to end with the main point. And that insertion is, okay, if he says he's not to be addicted to wine, does that mean that moderate drinking is okay? That we can drink in moderation, that social drinking, that recreational alcoholic beverage uh, consumption is okay? And, 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 you know, again, I think this is a needless insertion because that is not the point of the text. It's kind of like when you start talking about those domestic qualifications and it says that a man is to be a husband of one wife. <laughs> and, and people will use that and almost act like the only thing God is doing is condemning polygamy. That's not the purpose of the text. I think it's a good text to go to, but it's not the main purpose. And, and, and I think the same thing happens here. And, and we're going to look at a few of those uh, dictionaries that we looked at earlier with those positive qualifications. And again, I'm not trying to bore you with all this, but because people come with these insertions, some honest, but I will say most of the time with a question like this, I think it's dishonest. 
we need to be ready to answer this. And so, first of all, Strong would say that it is staying near wine. That's the main thing that I want to focus on. In fact, if you look at that Greek word, it, it, in the Strong's Dictionary, it says that it's almost the combining of two Greek words that seems to indicate being beside or near or, at, or in the vicinity of alcohol. And, and, and as you look at that notion, staying near wine, I think it's pretty clear. It's not just talking about someone who just gets blackout drunk. I think it's talking about everywhere in between. Everywhere that leads up to that. Someone who is staying near wine is someone who is at or near or beside. Um, and and I, I think that that is honestly pretty clear. And in, when you look at this question, people, I think, get away from how we usually interpret Scripture. A lot of times when, when people have maybe a, a thought that comes up and they may want to prove it, they find some random scripture that may somewhat help their cause and what they do is rip it out of its context and they try to use that to say, okay, boom, this proves what I'm trying to teach. And that's just not a fair way of reading scripture. That's not a fair way of interpreting scripture. And, and that's not what we do I mean, pretty much any other time with the text. So, for example, when people do this with, with, uh, with alcohol and say that he's not addicted to wine, that means that the moderate drinking is okay. The very next qualification is that he's not pugnacious or violent or quarrelsome. Using the same logic, could someone not say, well, you know, the qualification is not to be violent, but, you know, some violence, that's okay. So he can quarrel a little bit and still, and still fit the qualification. Does that fit? It can't. It's not logically consistent. And so I think it's logically inconsistent to do that when it comes to this qualification of someone who's not given or addicted to wine. But that's not the only thing that I want to look at. I think this is already pretty clear of someone who is not near or at or beside or in the vicinity of alcohol. But you look at Vine's uh, definition here and it talks about tearing at wine. You know what that word tarry means? It, uh, we even sing a hymn actually. Tarry here, he told the three. Tarry here and wait, watch for me. But they heard no bitter moan. Jesus' three disciples slept while my loving Savior wept in Gethsemane alone. We sing that hymn from time to time. And, and what is the notion of tarry here, wait here, stay here, remain in the vicinity? And so when Vine says someone who is tarrying at wine, what is he talking about? He's, he's talking about someone who, who, is, who is remaining with wine. Now, here's another question. Because people, people could come in and say all kinds of things. Who is the one who is tarrying at wine? The man who gets blackout drunk or the one who comes home and, and opens his cupboard filled with bottles and cans of alcohol, takes one out at dinner and just sips on it. He doesn't get blackout drunk like the first man, but he does you know, sip on it slowly and make sure he doesn't get completely incapacitated. And he's very careful just to make sure that doesn't happen. Who is the one who's tarrying at wine? I, I don't think this is unfair. Both are tarrying at wine. Whether you're getting blackout drunk or you're the one who just remains in the vicinity of it, you're the one that's just uh, uh, drinking in moderation, you are tarrying at wine regardless. And so from both standpoints, I think that, we need, I think that people need to answer that question. I think people need to be very uh, honest with the text. And again, the only reason I have to go into this is because from time to time, frankly, much ink has been spilt. And many discussions have been had about, well, is this teaching? Is Paul trying to teach that moderate drinkers go, okay, you just look at the rest of Scripture, and that's just not true. And in fact, I will just say, if this isn't enough, we are going to be going over a lesson just on alcohol and what the Bible says about it, how it is a sin, and that Christians should not be participating in that. 
We're going to be doing that in two weeks, not this coming Sunday, but in two, two Sundays from now. So just if this isn't enough, just wait and we'll get more into it and get more in depth. But ultimately, I don't want to get away from the main point that God is trying to make here. I think that not only does this ban the recreational use of alcohol, but it bans anything that would hinder or get in the way of a man's dedication, sobriety, and relationship to God. What God is saying is this can't be a man who has no control of his fleshly desires. It needs to be quashed. And this is just, and so I think the point is complete sobriety. A man who is leading the flock of God that Jesus has purchased with his blood, he needs to be, he needs to have all of his faculties. Neither can he be, uh, he can't be blackout drunk, neither can he be just on a buzz when he's thinking about godly things. And so I think we need to be more fair with that when people uh, ask that question. Uh, and so he's not to be uh, given to wine, addicted to wine. This has no place in his life. Well, next, the next negative one we look at is not self-willed. Titus chapter 1 and verse 7, the New American Standard puts it as self-willed. You may have a few other translations, but I do think that this is very fitting. Instead of having a servant heart, he has a self-serving one. That's the kind of man that we're talking about here. He is stubborn, obstinate, arrogant. In fact, both Mounts and Strong would agree that this man is arrogant. And all of these things go together. Uh, if you could turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. This is very interesting. Because this same Greek word that Paul says a man that's going to be an elder cannot be self-willed, Peter uses to describe a certain kind of person. 2 Peter chapter 2. In verse uh, 10. As he's speaking about false prophets, false teachers, ungodly men who distort the truth and distort the grace of God, it says in verse 10, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. And you even remember this morning that we got to verse 15 when it harkens back to that story of Balaam. And what did Balaam do? He acted just like the false teachers. He tried to find loopholes. He tried to push against God's boundaries. He ended up being a very divisive man because he's the one that told Balak how to curse, how to bring a curse on the people of Israel. They brought it on themselves and all by the advisement and counsel of Balaam. And so Peter uses this word to say this is a divisive man, a stubborn man, and an obstinate man is one that brings strife. It's one that brings contention in the church. That's a problem. Very clearly that's a problem. Look at how much damage Balaam did to the people of Israel. How much damage can a man who is self-willed do to the flock of God? And so this is a man who has mastered himself at least at least in this area, that he is not self-willed, but he is also thinking about the, his brethren. <clears throat> in Third John, verses nine through ten, John talks about a man named Diotrephes, and he says, this, "I'm going to I'm going to oppose him because this man is 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 uh, rejecting people from the fellowship that should be added in. He is having fellowship with people that shouldn't be have that we shouldn't have any fellowship with, and he doesn't care about the authority of God. He's just doing whatever he wants to do." This is also, I think, this notion of being self-willed. He forces his own agenda at the cost of Christ and at the cost of Christ's church, at the cost of his brethren. I like the way, uh, as, as I was listening to several lessons on this, and I like the way that J.R. Bronger put this when he uh, talked about a self-willed man. He said, if he can't rule the church his way, he will ruin the church his way. 
Let me just ask, do you know a man like that? Do you know a man who is self-willed, who, who will rule his way? If he doesn't get his way, he'll ruin it all. He'll bring strife. He'll bring contention. He'll try to divide. That is a self-willed man. That man has no place in God's church to be an elder. In fact, he has no place really in God's church unless he repents. So do, do, do you know this man? Maybe are you this man? Have you ever seen people who, who try to look to establish their own ideas or decisions at any cost? They don't think about their brethren. They think that their decision, their thoughts are most important, are most valid, and they have no consideration for anybody else's. And let me just say, even if you're never going to be an elder, <laughs> you need to listen to this too. Because you're not to be self-willed either. But you're supposed to have a servant heart just like Christ. And so don't think that you have an out from this. Everyone should be listening. So we're not to be self-willed. Is that me? Have you ever seen someone like that who uses authority when it suits them but overlooks it when it gets in their way? That's diatrophies. That's the men that Peter was talking about, divisive and stubborn man. The point of this passage, the point of this qualification rather, is that this is a man who is disciplined and, and so disciplined that he can see past his own desires and, and, and considers and cares for the brethren. He isn't rash or foolish enough to despise God's authority. He loves it and he sticks closely to it. He's humble. He's not arrogant. And you can tell if a man is arrogant or not by how he deals with his brethren. Do you know that man? You ever met that man? Better not be me. <laughs> Otherwise, there's serious repentance required. But finally, we look at this notion of not being quick-tempered. And again, this is, I think, as clear as it gets. I know that sometimes we joke and say, oh, well, you know, I, got, I, I let my temper get the better of me. And, you know, I just, I've always had some kind of issue. I, I've even done that before. I, I think I've even done that here. I don't think that a man is qualified to be an elder if he is constantly jesting and, and joking about the fact that, oh, man, I just can never control my temper. You should see me when I get on a roll. That's not good. <laughs> I, I have no confidence in that man whatsoever who just jokes about that. In fact, this is a man who instead of being quick-tempered, quick to anger, he is slow to anger. Over in James chapter 1, James chapter 1 and verse 19, James would talk about this. I know he's not talking about elders specifically, but he says that this is supposed to be across the board. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And I would say all of those things an elder should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Does that mean he never speaks? Of course not. We've talked about that. But he is quick to, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So that way he doesn't make a rash decision. This is a man who's, who, who, whose first or go-to response is not going to be anger. It's not going to be things that are going to cause strife and contention. A quick-tempered man is one who, when his judgment is not accepted, he blows up. We've seen that. I mean, every one of us has seen that, whether at work, maybe in church, in our families. We've seen that before. A quick-tempered man is not just one who blows up when he doesn't get his way, but it is one, as we were just talking about, who will spread strife in the church because he hasn't got his way. It's like a child when they don't get what they want. They go and they complain to their parents. They go and they complain to someone who will listen, and they go and complain to someone who might be able to do something for them. That is what a quick-tempered man is, and this is not what an elder is to be. It's not what any one of us is supposed to be. 
A quick-tempered man is someone who, when, when, he is, uh, when, when someone disagrees with him, he immediately reacts aggressively instead of being able to have a calm conversation. This is just as important. It's not just a man who, you know, when we talk about blowing up, we think that it's good enough a man's just <clears throat> gritting his teeth and it looks like his face has gotten so red that it's about to pop. That is, that is not someone who is slow to anger. He is a quick-tempered man. Just because he doesn't blow up just, you know, right in front of your face and just because he doesn't say all kinds of things right then, that is not a man who's slow to anger. So we know what that looks like. It's, it's, it's not that hard. It's someone who, even though there is going to be disagreement, someone who, even though there is going to be some contention from time to time, he's able to have a calm conversation because he is a master of self. He's mastered his emotions. Not because he's anything great, but because Christ taught him how to. That is what an elder is. That is what a man who is qualified to be an elder is. Slow to anger, patient, long-suffering, and able to suffer a wrong. And the reason I put that there is because you will, if you serve in this capacity, you will receive much backlash from time to time. Not all the time, but there will be moments where it's much harder than not. And there are going to be moments where people may say things. There are going to be moments where people disagree with your choice as you're trying to best lead the congregation. And you cannot, that man cannot respond with, all right, we're just going to withdraw from him. That's a quick-tempered man. All right, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to in public, say all the most nastiest things I can possibly say about him. I'm going to share every secret that he's confided in me. That's a quick-tempered man. You know what a man that's slow to anger does? Even if, even if, the accusations, even if the things that people are saying is plain wrong. He's not going to go and just try to do as they have done to him. He's going to slow down. He's going to go talk to them. He is going to make sure that, he, that that person is not belittled in the congregation, at least by him. And in fact, if someone else is belittling that member, he's not going to go right along with them. He's going to say that, yes, they need help, but we're not going to continue Slandering. We're not going to continue speaking maliciously. That's a man that's slow to anger, who can see past his own pride, ultimately, for the cause of Christ. And so all of these things, I would say, go together. All of these things must be in place. The good habits and the bad habits need to be completely not a part of his life. This, as we've talked about for the last few months, this is what God expects from men who are going to lead as elders. I like uh, what, what uh, another thing that J.R. has said several times as, he, as I would listen to several of his sermons growing up. One thing that he would bring up from time to time, and even talking about habits, is, is uh, a little saying that I don't know where it came from. But it starts with, you sow a thought, you reap an action. You sow an action, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap a character. Sow a character... Reap a destiny. Habits are incredibly important because they end up really defining what kind of person we are. And they end and when, when we become a certain kind of person, it very it becomes very clear what path we are going down. Am I the kind of person, do I have the kind of character that is righteous like David, that God sees as righteous, that he is going to accept into his, his loving arms when the judgment day comes? Or am I walking down the path, because I don't have a character like Jesus, of destruction and death and that leads to hell? Let me just say, 
the takeaway from this lesson is not if you are not currently at this point. Maybe you struggle with some of these things. The point of this lesson is not to just say, well, I guess I can't ever be one. I can't ever lead as an elder. I can't ever serve in that capacity. And, and, and the point is not, there's no path forward for me. Rather, the point is that you can change the habits right now to start on the right path to being a servant leader in the church. But it must start today. Because we only have so much time on this earth. And we can't keep wasting time if we are not on that path already. Now, you may be thinking, what does this have to do with me if I'm not even a Christian? If I'm someone that can never be an elder, I'll just say, when thinking about habits, guess what? Sin is a habit. We have gotten into the habit, a very hard habit to break, that, that entraps us, that captivates us, that keeps us down and oppressed so that we cannot get back up, that we cannot have enough strength to lift ourselves. But what Christ has said is he can give you liberty. He can break you of every bad habit, no matter how strong. And so are you willing to hear the instruction that he gives to break bad habits? Hear what he has to say to break the bonds of sin. The instruction's right before you. Are you willing to be faithful in those things? Repent of everything he says has to be done away with. Make a confession based on that belief. Pledge yourself to God. Pledge yourself to Christ in following after him for the rest of your days and be baptized into his death to rise in newness of life, in his life. You can have salvation tonight. You can look more like the Savior tonight. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.